Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> Glad to see you all out here this morning. We're going to be starting a new series this morning, and it's a series on, um, that's going to finish up the book of Genesis for us. We've been putting, giving Genesis in pieces over the past couple of years, and uh, the patriarchs is what we really centered on the past year, and now we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph, which will wrap up the book of Genesis. So you can be proud of yourselves that you made it through uh, that whole book. It's a long one, <laughs> not to mention how many years it covers. Okay, so this last night, Steve and I uh, decided to spend the night by the fire. Good idea on a cold night. And we watched an old movie, some of you may remember, called All the President's Men. Uh, it came out when I was in college, so it was like millions of years ago. Um, uh, and I saw it in the theater when I was a freshman, actually. It was a story of Bernstein and Woodward. Now, those names may not be familiar to you, but they were the two reporters that did the investigating that broke open the Watergate scandal, which eventually caused Nixon to resign. So it was a, they were two re young guys in their 30s or, or 30 years old at the Washington Post, and just through a series of luck where something was said that they dug a little deeper on, they um, followed the Watergate break-in from the culprits who had done it all the way up to the White House. Um, and the, when, the cent, when it broke and there was a, um, a Congress hearing, um, and, and then Nixon was impeached, and then finally he did resign. Um, so it was, it was an interesting thing. And after he resigned, and I remember the day when he did, um, uh, Vice President Ford took the oath as president to take his place as Nixon left the White House. So the country by this time was in quite an uproar. Uh, there were a, a lot of people were upset, and even the most staunch of Republicans were crying out for justice and were very concerned about what was going on uh, in the White House and the corruption that had been taken place there. A lot of people were looking for blood because no one, not even the president, is above the law. But Ford's first act as pre president shocked the nation. He got in front of the microphone and he pardoned, gave a full pardon to Nixon for all of his crimes. Well, as you can imagine, people were outraged that he would get away and affront with it and never suffer for his wrongs. That's the problem. Sometimes life is not fair. We all have that sense of justice ingrained in us because we were created in God's image. The good should be rewarded, and the bad should be punished. Wrongs should be made right. When I was a child, I had a very strong injustice within me, and when I would see something happening that I felt was wrong, I would just be so outraged, and my father would just say this to me, Julie, life's not fair. It enraged me when he would say that, because life should be fair, and, and it's a struggle I've always had. And the thing is, God has always been very firm about his love for justice. In Jeremiah, he says, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, he declares. So why then, if God delights in it, and it's just wrong, just plain wrong when there's injustice in this world, why then is there so much injustice? Even Jesus acknowledged that kind of injustice. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, he said 
in the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the first part of the story of Joseph. You're probably wondering when I was getting around to the Bible, right? If anyone has cause to complain that life seemed unfair, it was Joseph. Uh, No matter what his faithful actions were, no matter how much he stayed submissive to God's plan, justice did elude him for many, many years. And we can learn from his story things that will enable us to trust God even in the face of injustice. Well, before we read the story, we have to know a couple of things. First of all, Joseph knew the big picture, God's picture, God's plan. How do we know? How did, how did he know those things? Well, we have to go back in time a bit to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. God called Abraham out of another country to live in Canaan, and then he made big promises to Abraham. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse the, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in, all, in you, all the families of earth would be blessed. How would the earth be blessed through Abraham? Well, God was going to make his descendants into a nation, and 2,000 years later, the Messiah would be born in the line of Abraham. God also to- told Abraham something else a little bit later on in his journey. He told it in a dream, and this is what he told him. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions, and then in the fourth generation they will return here. Now Joseph lived in a time where oral tradition was very, very strong, There were no written books to pass around and share. Everything was done by word of mouth. And families had a very strong sense of their history, where they came from and where they thought they were headed. Those things were passed on to the children. And no doubt, as strong as Jacob was uh, in his faith in God and his relationship with him, he passed down these things that Abraham's gen- their family was going to become a great nation and that they, the whole world would be blessed through them and that for 400 years they'd be brought to another land, they would be made slaves and eventually return to the land four generations later. All of those things were known fact to Joseph and to all of his brothers. Jacob must have passed it on. It doesn't make any sense that he wouldn't. So... The other thing we need to know before we read this account is that God used dreams all through his dealings with Joseph's family and ancestors. Um, Just like God told his descendants' future to Abraham in his dream, he reiterated that promise. He came to Isaac and told him in the night that he would bless him and multiply his descendants. He gave Jacob a dream where God told him, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. They will be like dust of the earth and you will spread out to the east and the west and the north and the south. And in you and your descendants, all the families of earth shall be blessed. So up until this point, every generation since Abraham has been given this information, a reiteration of God's promises through a dream. 
And now we get to Genesis chapter 37. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, and in the land of Canaan. Joseph, when at 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw their father loved him more than all the brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. That Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please, listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I still have another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Let's ask God to help us with this passage. Heavenly Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would be active in helping us this morning to uh, discern the truth that we are to glean from this passage. And also, God, that it would just be something that we could tuck to our hearts and that you would use to transform us. We depend on you for all of that, Lord. Get me out of the way. Let your truth shine through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Joseph was 11th of 12 sons of Jacob, Israel, whom God later renamed Israel. So we, we call that family the children of Israel. Now, at least the King James did. And I'll tell you, <laughs> I used to think that the children of Israel were literally children of Israel when I was a little kid. And I was so surprised one day when I found out they were grown-ups. But his brothers, with the exception of Benjamin, who would be born after him, were really just stepbrothers. And they only shared their father in common, not so much the mothers. And when you look at the way that this family came about, you can see dysfunctional written all over it. So Jacob, you'll remember from our series, that he was tricked into marrying the sister of a woman that he truly loved. Then he married his sister Rachel. And this is what the Bible tells us. Leah conceived and bore a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Isn't that the saddest thing? After a second son, this is what she said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. So I guess the first one didn't work. He has therefore given me this son also. Well, her sister Rachel was barren, and that dug deep into Rachel's heart that Leah had been given two sons and her none. So she gave her maid, Bilhah, to her husband. And after the, her son was born, Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. So you see this wrestling thing she's talking about. The two sisters are absolutely in conflict with each other, having these babies for not great reasons. Then Leah, in turn, gives her maid, Zilpah, 
to Jacob. And she has two more. And she says this, happy am I for women will call me happy. Leah has two more and says, now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. Six, including the two that her handmaid gave. Finally, God gave the baby to Rachel after many years of barrenness, and he's named Joseph. Even with the three other wives, Rachel was still the wife that Jacob loved best, and the other wives were never loved as Rachel was. Now, just think of this scenario if it had occurred in modern day, where there are four wives all battling for the love of the husband, all having baby after baby, trying to prove their superiority over the other. Nothing but competition and envy. Now, imagine what they raised their children to think. You know, when you're a mom, things come out of your mouth. And you say things even when you know that they're wrong. And your kids pick up on those things. They pick up on your attitude. I remember one time when Adam was really little. He was my only child at the time. I was on the beltway and I was driving. And as I was driving, this giant truck came rumbling past us. A little scary. White-knuckled driving on the beltway. I hate driving on the beltway. And Adam in his back seat said, I hate that truck. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, I know where he got that one from. Kids pick up on stuff, don't they? And so, uh, and, and these boys would have picked up on their mother's continual conflict and fight and, and uh, vying for power and superiority within the family. They were always bitter against the favorite wife and her son. And Jacob did nothing to improve the situation. What does he do? He starts being, uh, giving favoritism toward the, the one son that Rachel had born. So uh, right in front of all the others. Not wise family dynamics. And so in light of all that family animosity and the things, unhealthy things that were going on in that family, it's no surprise that they don't welcome Joseph's news about his dreams. And it even you'll notice that even in Genesis, it points out in the story, even though we've had all the history in a few chapters earlier, it points out the different mothers of the sons of Jacob. It says, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, the father's wives. So he doesn't even just say, along with his brothers. He, he points out those family dynamics as he tells this story. So that family dysfunction definitely continued into uh, and even their adult years. So in the midst of all the bitter quarreling and strife, Joseph comes to his brothers and announces that God has given him the dream. Now think about it. All of the other generations had received that reiterated, reassuring promise of God and his covenant with the family. And Joseph is the one that gets the dream. So it was offensive then on two fronts to the brothers to hear these dreams. Now it it just is kind of sad because you think of Joseph, and I've heard him referred to as a spoiled brat or, you know, But I think he was so excited over getting that dream that he could hardly wait to tell his brothers. Why? Because the dream was about God interacting with the family. The dream was God giving his uh, foretelling of the future to the next generation. So you can picture Joseph jumping up from bed and couldn't wait to get out there to tell the brothers, we got the dream. He's still with this generation. 
And what was he met with? Anger. Why would God give Joseph the dream when he was the 11th son? Firstborn always has the place. Reuben should have gotten it. But you have to remember, God doesn't always work through the firstborn. Jacob himself was a prime example of that. Um, but God chose to work through him to make his family line the one that continued that covenant relationship with him. The brothers apparently had a short memory. That he would rule over them was the other thing that really got into the brothers' hearts. They knew the dream was from God. I know they did. Who dreams about sheaves bowing down to each other? Who dreams about the sun, moon, and stars, or the moon, stars bowing down to the sun? We don't dream those kind of dreams. Those aren't things that we dream. We dream about ourselves and people and things happening and stuff. But these were weird dreams. These were out-of-the-ordinary dreams. And God spoke through dreams, and they all knew it. So to hear Joseph come up with these dreams and know, they knew God had given him the dream. But what was their response? They were angry, they were rebellious, and they weren't going to do it. So in their entitlement and in their hard hearts, the brothers refused to accept the dreams. And surprisingly, so did Joseph's father. But it, it, it's just so sad that even Joseph's father was, what, we're going to bow down to you? What are you thinking? But it does say that uh, while the brothers hated him even more for his dreams and his words, his father kind of kept these things in mind, not, not counting out the possibility that this could be truly what God was saying. But, you know, even through all of that adversity, Joseph never lost his sense of destiny. Destiny for his whole family, not just for him. He never lost sight of God's big picture, the big plan, revealed at the very beginning to his great-grandfather, Abraham. He trusted in God's moving, even to work within the context of brothers refusing to acknowledge God's plan and dream revelation. Nowhere do we ever read any bitterness or anger on Joseph's part for the injustice he experiences. Why? Because he takes God at his word. Now we'll continue throughout uh, Joseph's story. We're going to be covering, I'll be speaking again next week, we'll be covering that story. And we're going to see that that trust remains in Joseph through some very dark days and very difficult circumstances. But he always kept the eye on, his, on the big picture trusting God to fulfill what he had promised. Well, so what? What does this story do to help us in our frustration about injustice that we talked about at the beginning of this message? All the injustice that we see today, how can this help us? How about somebody who was raped, brutally attacked through no fault of her own? Where was God then? How about the swindler who steals the life savings of his many clients and lives out a cushy existence on some Caribbean island? Not fair. Unjust. Or what about the young mother dying of cancer? Or the abusive husband who keeps his wife and children under a tyrannical thumb for a whole lifetime? Even the little things like obnoxious people on the internet making brash and condemning statements, sometimes in the name of the Lord with no consequences. We really want to know, why don't people get what they deserve? All of these, and those are all tips of the iceberg, of course, make us wonder, how can we reconcile injustice with when we know that God is just? He's powerful. He's all-knowing. 
He could have stopped any of those things. Where is his justice? And how do we deal with injustice that profoundly affects our own personal lives? Well, I think that the story of Joseph gives us a really good place to start. First of all, God continues, as he was in Joseph's day, continues to have the big picture in mind. Just as Joseph trusted in the big picture, knowing that God would carry out his promises in his time, no matter how bleak circumstances appeared at the moment. We are so limited in our understanding, in our vision. But God has access to all the information. So his judgments are made wisely. He never has to revise his estimation of something because of additional information. We can trust him to do the right thing always. So that's one thing, the big picture, the big plan. Secondly, we're not the first to experience injustice. Jesus knew it would be his experience before he left heaven to come to earth. He would be rejected by the nation's leaders. He would be accused as coming from Satan, even in light of the miracles that he did to prove his claims. He was sentenced to death through a corrupt trial, and he went to the cross, through innocent, though innocent of uh, leaders' accusations. He bore the sin of the world when he had not sinned even once. And those leaders who demanded his death, who manipulated the system, never repented. They continued the ruse even when the Roman soldiers came to them and told them about the angels in the empty tomb. They paid them off to keep their silence. My heart just burns when I read those things because they weren't ever made to pay. But through all that injustice, Jesus kept his peace. He knew that his obedience to the Father was to completing his mission, it was key to completing his mission on earth. Injustice didn't sway him because he was trusting in the wisdom and the goodness of the Father. He didn't let the temporal dissuade him from the eternal purpose of his coming. And he continued with obedience that led him straight to the cross. And truth be told, thank God we don't get what we deserve. Jesus won our pardon and we were justified by his death because he was punished in our place. Romans says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In his life and death, he provided justice for us by serving our sentence. Our sentence has been served, and we have been set free. So that's not fair, but it's true. The last thing I want to remind you of is that as we go through life with injustice, trying to give God the uh, benefit of the doubt with, by believing in the, the fact that it was his plan and that in his goodness all things will happen uh, for the good, there's a crowd of witnesses that cheers us on. Elite, uh, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, his wife Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and yes, Joseph have all made it to the eternity side of life. They finished their race. And they now possess a full understanding of all that had happened to them the same understanding that we will someday receive when we're in eternity. But what are they doing right now? They're standing at the finish line. They're cheering us on, we who are still in the race. Hebrews says this, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us would not be made, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, 
since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. That Think about that crowd of witnesses who've already made it to the finish line and who already now see the big picture. Well, in closing, I'd like to tell you about another time when witnesses cheered on a struggling soul. His name was Derek Redmond, and he entered the 1992 Olympic Summer Games in Barcelona with a lot of hope in his heart. Four years previously, he had entered the Olympics, and he had had an injury 10 minutes before the starting gun. So now, after five surgeries and grueling hard work, Derek was back. His father stood in the stands, ready to cheer his son onto his gold medal. Well, as the semifinal round took off, Derek pulled right to the front of the pass, pack, and things were looking good. He was going down that track, uh, quickly pulling ahead of the group, and then suddenly he felt a pop in his hamstring muscle. His leg collapsed underneath him, and he fell to the track. And in agony as he lay there, the te tears just flowed down his face. His dreams were over. Never would he get that Olympic medal. Medical personnel came rushing out with a stretcher to, to uh, get him out of the, the track, but Derek waved them away. He was going to finish the race. The other runners by now had already crossed the finish line. And the crowd began to realize what Derek was attempting to do. They rose in disbelief and they started to cheer. The cheer quickly turned into a deafening roar. And tears flowed down people's faces as they witnessed Derek's pain and determination to finish that race. Six 65,000 fans were on their feet, screaming their encouragements to that young athlete, hopping the final 175 meters to the finish line. Well, Derek's father in the stands, he couldn't stand it any longer. He burst through the cloud, somehow got past security, and leaped over the railing and ran down that track toward his son. He put his arms around him, and he told Derek this. I'm here, son. We will finish this race together. They, as they wait, made their way across the finish line, arm in arm, there was not one dry eye in the place. Crying, clapping, cheering, the 65,000 witnesses urged the pair toward their goal. Derek crossed the finish line on his own, his father by his side, to the delight of the frenzied crowd. Well, we, my friends, are running our own race. Hebrews says, let us run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And as we struggle toward our own finish line, we do so with our Heavenly Father right by our side. The witnesses are cheering. They're already there. They can see the big picture. And what are they cheering? Keep going. You can do this. Keep your eyes on him. He's standing at the finish line. It will be worth it. That's what they're saying. We don't run the race alone. Like that supportive father with his arms around his son, God is guiding and supporting us. He hates the injustice even more than you do. But he's also patient, giving this world every chance to turn to him before the end. But at the end, there will be justice. But it will be in God's time. In the meantime, he runs beside us, giving his support, half carrying us toward that finish line. He promises to give us the strength we need 
to endure, as well as peace through the injustice as we choose to trust him. So we need to keep our focus, not on our feet, not even on the track, but at the finish line, on Jesus, who moved through all the injustice in this world before us. He bore it all in order to bring us peace with God. So we run, keeping our eyes on him, which will allow us not to grow weary or ever lose heart. We can look injustice in the eye and trust him for it all. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is a plan for us and for our world. And even as there was in Joseph's day, help us not to look at the circumstances around us, but to keep our eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews commands. Help us to stay true to what we believe about your wisdom and goodness and trust that you will make things right in the end. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.